Hello and welcome to the Spiritual School Bus. I'm Mandy Hecht. I'm an ordained minister with the Canadian Baptist of Western Canada, and I drive a school bus. In Baptist churches and on the bus, it seems like everyone wants to sit in the back. You, however, are invited to take a front row seat on the Spiritual School Bus. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me, since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate as Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. May God add the blessing to the reading of the word this morning. Last week we left our newly created human people in a moment of devastation. Having failed to trust their creator, they listened instead to the words of the crafty serpent, who convinced them that perhaps the God who created them and provided everything they needed, who had breathed into into them the breath of life and given them food to eat and even given them one another for companionship, perhaps that God was not trustworthy. And so they reached out and took the one thing that had been prohibited for them, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Cree poet Billy Ray Belcourt has said, to love someone is firstly to confess I'm prepared to be devastated by you. And this is, of course, true of human beings, but it's even more deeply and profoundly true of God. And that's the pattern we actually see over and over again in the early parts of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 demonstrate the same pattern of devastation we saw in the paradise of Eden. After Adam and Eve leave the garden and begin having children, within the first generation there is the first murder, And things begin to spiral downward from there until it reaches a point only up to Genesis chapter 6 where the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination and thoughts of the human heart was evil all the time. Six chapters in. At which point God decides to wipe the slate clean and start again with a flood, preserving only the representative animals in the family of Noah in the impending disaster. Now, Noah was selected, Scripture tells us, because he was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. But by the end of Noah's story, he doesn't actually fare much better either, and the cycle begins again, with humanity spiraling downward, this time until the famed story of the Tower of Babel, where God is forced to confound the inclinations of humanity once again. So the pattern of Genesis early on is how humanity devastates over and over again the God who created them. And God continues to reach out and to respond to his creation. But in Genesis chapter 12, the story turns a corner with the entrance of Abraham, then known as Abram. And just to warn you, I'll probably switch back and forth between the two names today. At this time, it's almost like if you could picture a camera shot that starts from a thousand feet up and then begins zooming in on an ever-narrowing circle until it's focused on only one man or, more precisely, one family. 
This actually represents a new movement of God, a new strategy that God thinks up to deal with the created ones. When God calls Abraham, as one writer puts it, it initiates a radical new development. God acts in history to set in motion a series of events that will ultimately heal the breach that sin placed between God and the world. So God decides instead of trying to work with humanity as a whole, pouring blessings over them as a group, instead God works with one family. And through that family, God intends to bless the entire world. So Abraham has a very outsized significance on the story, not just in the Old Testament, but actually throughout the entire Bible. But even as the biblical story turns a corner when we encounter Abraham and his family, the story is also deeply connected to what has come before it. One, uh, the writers of one book say that unlike Aesop's fables or Winnie the Pooh, the book of Genesis is not a series of pithy short stories with moral lessons, but a series of stepping stones in the story of Israel's beginnings. So the story of Abraham also connects back to the beginning, to the stories of creation as well. When Abraham appears on the pages of scripture, it's only because he is visited by Yahweh, the God of creation, who shows up to him with an ask and a promise. In Genesis 12, we read, The Lord said to Abraham, or to Abram, Go, into, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So the ask, of course, is that Abram would leave all he has known and go to the land that God shows him. And the blessing is that Abraham will be made into a great nation. And the blessing actually gets modified in today's reading in chapter 15, where God invites Abram to go and gaze into the heavens and to try to count the number of stars there if he can, and then adds, so shall your offspring be. And in fact, that language harkens back once again to the original word of God to the human beings. The very first command that God gives to people, if you will, is be fruitful and multiply. And that language shows up again in the story of Noah as well. And here it is again, even though we're beginning a new stage in the history of God's dealing with the world. And so it is, as one writer says, each state of Israel's journey is like a new beginning, a reminder that Israel's story is bound to and perhaps is fulfilling the purposes of the original creation story. So the story of Abram is, at both turns, a very different uh, place in the overarching biblical story, and at the same time, it is an attempt to get back to the fulfillment of the original creation story. And so here we are in Genesis chapter 15 with Abram and the God who will not stop promising things, who refuses to give up on the human project, even though we know how well that has been going up till this uh, time. Will things be different with Abram? Well, actually, yes. Things do begin to turn a corner with Abram. And I think we get a glimpse of why that is in Genesis chapter 15. You see, nobody really knows why God chose to call Abram, to call this particular man and this particular family, to journey to the place God would show them, and to be the ones through whom God would bless the entire world. Unlike Noah, who was deemed righteous and therefore the one God selected to pioneer the new world after the flood, no such proclamation is made for Abram. In fact, Abram seems somewhat of an unlikely hero. 
One writer says that we're not told how a refugee from Mesopotamia would even know who the Lord, Yahweh, is, or even why Yahweh would bother with him. In fact, the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, hints that at least Abram's father, who was called Terah, if not Abram's whole family, had a sketchy religious past while in Mesopotamia. Joshua 24 says, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons Abram and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Yikes! What are we supposed to make of Abram's Mesopotamian pedigree and dallying in idol worship? Also, what did he do to deserve this special meeting with God to become the father of all of Israel? In fact, not only that, it seems to me that perhaps the deck was actually stacked against Abram from the beginning, not only to be the person who would receive God's call, given his suspected background of idol worship, but also to be the one through whom God would fulfill this lofty promise that Abram would be made into a great nation, one whose, one whose offering would be so great as to be as uncountable as the stars in the sky or the dust of the earth. Because another thing that we know about Abram very early on, in fact, even before he gets the call from God to leave his family and venture out on his own, is that his wife is unable to bear children. We learn that in Genesis 11, verse 30. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. And so we have an utterly ordinary man who's somehow associated with idol worship, married to a woman who is unable to conceive children up to this point in their relationship, and it's to this family that the word of God comes, however improbably, that they would be made into a great nation. Now, if you're incredulous as to just why God would choose this particular person out of all the peoples on the earth who would carry out the commandments of creation— to be the one through whom God would set into motion the series of events to ultimately heal the breach that sin has placed between God and the world, you're in pretty good company. Because by the time we get to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, he is just as incredulous as you are. You see, by the time this story happens, years have passed between the day that God called and Abram went. Decades even. And yet with every passing month, Abram is getting older, as is his wife Sarai. And while they have actually been blessed in this intervening time with a lot of wealth, Abraham was already a fairly wealthy man at the time God called him, but he's still managed to amass more flocks and herds. He's built quite a retinue of slaves and people who owed him fealty in one way or another. He's been given wealth and blessings from pharaohs and kings alike. But even though his material wealth abounded, Abram still stands there without two of the things that God promised way back when Abram started out. He still has no land. He's a wandering nomad who takes his abundant wealth with him as he wanders in tents, and he still does not have a child who will inherit all he has. And so it is into this situation that God shows up to Abram once again, unbidden once again, this time in a vision. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. 
So even though Abram has done as God has instructed him, even though he set out from his father's household with Sarai, his wife, and his nephew Lot, and all the rest of his wealth in a caravan, the notion that Abram will become an ancestor of a great nation is even less possible at this time than when Abram first set out on his journey. Old Testament scholar Robert Alter translates uh, the phrase in Genesis 15 verse 2 as Abram saying, what can you give me when I am going to my end childless? And comments that going to is sometimes used as a euphemism for dying. It seems that Abram feels that he's far nearer to the end of his life than to the beginning. He feels as though he's near death. And in fact, in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul recalls the story of Abram, Paul remarks he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead in Romans chapter 4. So by this point in the story, Abram feels old and used up and nearly dead. And still God has not come through with the promise he received and believed. And he demonstrated that by his feet because he got up and went as God had told him to many years before. And once again, we can see the creation connection in this story. Just as Eve and Adam were tempted to doubt the character of God and whose lack of trust caused the devastation of losing Paradise of Eden, Abram, it seems, is faced also with that same temptation. One writer observes that for Abram and Sarah, then, who had left everything behind in order to step into God's promised future, the continued barrenness of their situation mocked their hope. So will Abram trust God and God's promise to him, even though everything he sees in the world indicates that this will never happen? What will Abram do with that all-too-familiar experience of hope deferred, a promise delayed so long as to be actually impossible? Will Abram put his faith and trust in God and God's promises, even though they are functionally useless? And the answer, as it turns out, is yes. Abraham's faith actually becomes something of a legend. He's immortalized in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, who declares Abraham the father of faith. And he writes this in the letter to the Romans, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all, Paul says. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. And the writer of the book of Hebrews adds Abraham to the famous Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11, stating, By faith Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become the father, a father because he considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Interestingly, that verse can also be rendered by faith even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. So just as legendary as Abraham's faith turns out to be, we probably shouldn't forget that he had help. But this man of faith legend becomes so in an interesting and perhaps even unexpected way. And that's this. When God shows up here, Abraham argues with God. 
he pushes back. When God shows up in this vision, once again stating a promise that is growing old and stale to Abram, who still lacks even one heir, let alone many that might grow into a nation, Abram begins to argue with God. God, Master, he says, what use are your gifts as long as I'm childless? See, you've given me no children. In fact, this is the first time that Abraham is recorded as saying anything in response to God at all. At other times, Abram responded with his feet. When God shows up and calls him to a new land, Abraham doesn't say a word according to the text. He just takes his family and sets out. But this time, well, this time Abraham has questions. Because up until this point in the story, God's promises have not held true for him. And this questioning God, of course, is not a response unique to Abraham. Which one of us has not felt the sting of a promise that has been broken? Which one of us has not had places in our lives where things feel or have felt barren or hopeless, where we have been disappointed or let down, even by God? Are there places in your life right now that keep you from being able to hope? One writer says this, because it's not just Abraham, of course. There are people in every congregation for whom the future looks empty. Present reality has a way of overwhelming future hope. And the promises of God too often seem to remain just that, promises. As a friend of mine has said, God is often subtle to a fault. Do you sit somewhere near the experiences of Abraham today, where the hopelessness of your situation mocks the notion of God's good promises? Do you sometimes sympathize with the notion that God is often subtle to a fault, rarely showing up in any meaningful way in everyday lives? Well, Abram responds to this situation where the circumstances of his life mocked any hope in what God had promised by asking God to elaborate, or even more than that, to explain God's self. How is it that you can whisper these promises in my ear, God, and I am still no further along than I was 10 years ago? You see, Abram, as it turns out, is the father of the faith in more than one way. Abram begins to question God, to ask God what's going on, and in doing so, he steps into that long tradition of questioning God that we find in the Bible, not as an act of doubt, but as an act of faith. The writers of the Psalms, of course, do it in poetic form, asking hard and difficult questions out of the pain of their circumstances. Moses took up this craft as well, questioning and even challenging God. We see it in the long-suffering Job. Even Sarai, Abraham's wife, gets into this action because she laughs to herself when this promise is restated within her earshot that she herself will conceive within the year. And it seems that Abram doesn't quit his questioning ways here. A little later on, we see him pleading with God for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which God is intent on destroying in an act of judgment. But here is the first incident recorded we have of Abram challenging God, asking for clarification on this promise that just seems so impossible, asking perhaps even for proof that this promise is not just a hope that is so elusive as so much smoke. Abram questioning God and that being counted as faith, that might surprise us. Because as one writer points out, we're taught to believe that we accept and we don't ask 
We wait for things in God's time and we don't challenge and we don't ask for signs or reassurance. But here Abram is doing just that. And no bolt of lightning comes from heaven and takes him out. Abe is asking for a sign. He wants something concrete. And our omnipotent, abundant, extravagant, loving, giving God brims over with excitement and says, Oh, Abe, you want a covenant? You got it. Watch this. The fact that Abram struggles with and challenges God actually becomes foreshadowing of what's to come with God's people, who a little later later on in Genesis are given a new name, which comes from the name of one of Abraham's grandsons. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, which means he strives or wrestles with God. And this actually becomes one of the very defining features of God's people. As one writer states, in their very name, the Israelites make plain and public that they see themselves as a people who struggle with God. And that struggle takes on many dimensions. For example, Job struggles with God's justice. Koheleth struggles with God's unreliability in the book of Ecclesiastes. The many psalmists wonder out loud, where is God when you need him? This is not a people who see themselves as a triumphant, top-of-the-food-chain people, but as wandering, wandering people, to use the vernacular of our day, who struggle with their faith. So Abraham, the one of legendary faith, challenges God and asks questions, and asks for clarification and even proof, when God up to that point in his life has remained subtle to a fault. And this one thing he actually gets right. Because that isn't always a given either in the life of Abraham. He didn't perform flawlessly up until this point in the story, and he doesn't later on either. In fact, in just the very next chapter of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah make a royal mess of things when they take the matter into their own hands, trying to force the delayed promise of God in their own timing by offering up the body of Sarah's slave, Hagar, which, in addition to being an abuse of a human created in God's own image, as if that wasn't bad enough. This causes all sorts of problems for Hagar and for the son she bears, Ishmael, and for Sarah and ultimately even Abraham. Abraham doesn't always behave in ways that could be emulated. He is, in true biblical form, an unlikely and flawed hero. But in this instance, we can follow in the footsteps of our father Abraham, who demonstrates his faith in God by daring to question God, which was the one thing I think that Adam and Eve failed to do in the garden when the crafty serpent shows up to cast aspersions and throw shade on the character of their creator God. Instead, they listened to the informing snake rather than to the God who formed them. But Abraham finally does not repeat that mistake, but instead asks questions and challenges God. He even demands proof, and in so doing, he becomes the father of the faithful who will come after him, legendary in his trust for God. So if life has you asking questions of God sometimes, if the deferment of promises makes you weary or wonder where God is, if you struggle with circumstances that mock your hope, know that you are in good company. Abraham waited a long time, In fact, even longer than this story, it still took another 13-ish years before the son that God promised, Isaac, was born. And that was only one child, hardly the stars in the sky that God promised here. That won't come for another couple centuries. But Abram still demonstrated faith. 
And that faith comes in the form of wrestling with God and striving with God and asking questions. Those who question God, I think, at least hold on to God even as they ask their questions. One writer says that it's no sin to look God square in the face and say, no, sir, you can't make me believe this is right, that this is what you want, that this is what you had in mind from the beginning. Sometimes the most pious posture a person can assume is the one that stands up to the world as it is, stands before the face of God and says, no, this I will not accept. This is not right, and God knows that better than anyone. If Abram, the father of faith, can ask questions and challenge God, then certainly you can do. Would you bow with me in prayer? God of the covenant, as you promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars, you have also promised us that we might live under those stars as your people, faithful and loved. Show us how to live as your people, how to be faithful in our questioning and our doubts as well as in our moments of contentment and joy, and how to nurture all your children with whom we share the same canopy of sky night after night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been the Spiritual School Bus. Thank you for listening. For more Spiritual School Bus, visit www.pastormandy.com. This recording is copyright 2020 by Mandy Hecht and may only be copied or redistributed by express written permission. Thank you and have a blessed week. As you go this week, remember that you are God's own people, chosen and dearly loved. As such, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, and patience, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And crown all these things with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Amen. Go in peace.